well. We are uh, with uh, Dr. Amy Orr-Ewing, um, PhD at Oxford, uh, honor lecturer at Aberdeen, and um, all kinds of things, Amy, that you, you do. You co-planted a church with your husband. You live on a farm. We have a farm. We, we it's too derelict to live there, Dave. But oh, okay. it is it is it is a, a conservation farm. So we're we're um, doing glorious things for for the Lord with the environment there. And yeah, it's great joy in that. That's super. I'm. I want to get into some of that too. I think that's really interesting. Um, also, um, you are the author of a very very good book um, called Why Trust the Bible. Uh, answers to 10 tough questions and I've read it and I think it's really helpful. I recommended it to our church two weeks ago, I think, um, on a Sunday morning for just like next step reading. So it's out there uh, in our community, but I wanted to have a conversation with you, uh, Amy, in and around kind of some of the, the content of your book on like the reliability, the trustworthiness. Um, but you, you, uh, are an apologist. So, and you're in and around these conversations all the time and sometimes the highest levels of academia, which means the highest levels of deconstruction, I would imagine, and questioning and thinking. So I think I'd just love to start out by just asking, like, what's the biggest objection to the Bible that you typically hear, or maybe a, a top few um, that you hear? Yeah. Um, do you know, uh, that's a really interesting question. In fact, the book um, takes sort of 10 objections that I just found were coming up a lot and that didn't seem to be in in um, kind of apologetics resources. So there's a lot of questions now, I think, about power dynamics. So questions mm. like, um, you know, didn't a group of men just decide what was going to be in the Bible? How could that be God's word? Or um, it's all just a matter of interpretation. You know, you basically you weaponize the text you make it mean what you you wanted it to mean and you ignore the bits you don't like um and kind of cultural imperialism those sorts of questions um and then obviously there are kind of moral questions how could the god of the old testament command people to kill people and still be like the loving god of the new testament um so those, those sorts of questions i think and then um like maybe taking a bit bigger step back, what does it? What would it mean that the Bible is God's word, as it were? I mean, aren't there other religious texts that are equally kind of viable as as um, as religious texts? So, th- those kind of questions. Wow. Yeah, those <laughs> are all the questions. Just a few little ones. <laughs> Just the little ones. Um, and what do you find like when people are asking you? a litany of these questions, do you find, what do you find like most compelling for you to answer that actually unlocks other, um, other things, other, like kind of that answers other questions as well? You know, like, well, where would you start if the, if there's someone can do three of those questions, is there a way place you would get start that kind of like helps to frame up answering the rest of the questions? Yeah. So I think, um, I think I would probably begin with, um, with the central claim of the New Testament to be truth in the public square. So there's a there's this idea that a lot of people have in Western culture that, you know, 
there are realms where we believe in truth like we think the law of gravity exists we think rape is wrong we you know we don't want fascism you know we have strong views about right and wrong in all kinds of all kinds of areas scientific sociological political etc historical you know it's not okay to be a revisionist or whatever about the holocaust um and and we're agreed on that Yet we think when it comes to the Bible or faith, that faith is a sort of sphere that isn't about that kind of truth. It's not about reality. Faith is is like in a different space. It's in the kind of preference, culture, wish fulfillment space. It's not about truth and reality. And often um, people who, you know, follow faiths will kind of go along with that and say, yeah, well, my faith is really important to me and it's highly personal and and sort of embrace the the positives, if you like, of that relativism. But the Christian faith uniquely doesn't do that. So unlike Islam, which insists on you've got to learn the right kind of Arabic and read the Quran in the original language, and unlike sort of other forms of Eastern philosophy where there's a strong cultural bent, the Christian faith is about truth in history and truth in the public square. And it's calling people to make a response to that truth. And so I think the best place to start really is probably the Gospels, because these claim to be eyewitness testimonies about the life of Jesus. The central claim is that of the incarnation that Jesus is God with us in flesh and, you know, crucifixion and empty tomb and so forth. And so you can encourage someone who's kind of a bit more postmodern or a bit more relativistic to read the Bible on its own terms or engage with the Bible on its own terms. And that means engaging it with it, its claims to public truth. So essentially, that's kind of what Paul does at Mars Hill in Acts 17. He's he's there in the midst of other ideas and he's saying the resurrection of the Son of God happened in history. Do you believe it or not? Do you want to ask questions? You know, this is open to scrutiny. Kind of come on, <laughs> you know, engage engage with it. Um, yeah, so I think for those who are concerned about power dynamics, those who are concerned about cultural imperialism, taking a text on its own terms is really, really important. And so that might be a way in with the Gospels. And then you're also saying to people, you know, I'm not expecting or asking you to accept the whole Bible as the truth, you know, and like you have to upend your entire life as the starting point for the Christian faith. That isn't the starting point. That that sort of comes later as you begin to follow Jesus and you begin to believe different things about the Bible. The starting point is, is it actually true? Is Jesus real? Was Jesus God with us in human flesh? Did 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 the resurrection happen? Is this meaningful to me? Do I need forgiveness, etc.? And so um, in a way you kind of take the pressure off. So you can say, I might well say to someone, it doesn't really matter what you think about the Old Testament. I mean, I can see why why you would think some of that is is quite violent. Let, why don't you begin by examining the life of Jesus? Um, and then, yes, there are going to be questions about the Old Testament. It's not to minimize them, but that's not really where you start. Yeah, that is so important. We talk about that around here on like our way in to the Bible is through Jesus. And I mean, unless you're Jewish, 
and culturally Jewish and you grew up in the in the in the Hebrew scriptures, you're getting into the Bible through Jesus. Yeah. And um and because of that, like you you have to like um you see the Old Testament the way Jesus saw the Old Testament. And um uh when 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 we say that when you frame that up and I've heard this as well as people will say, well how do I know that that the that like the Bible is the, the words of Jesus were actually recorded as Jesus said them. How do we know that? How do we even know Jesus said that? And I say yeah, that because okay. yeah, there was a, a friend of mine who, who like left the faith because like, it was like when Jesus said, you know, ask and it'll be given to you. He's like, did Jesus really say that? What if he, like, first of all, I've tried that. And it didn't really work. And did he, but did he even say that? And it led this person down a road where it just like, uh, I don't even think the Jesus said anything he said. I don't know if we can prove that, you know, that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, as Christians living today in 2023, we have access to a whole load of different resources on that on that question than Christians did before 2006. And that is because um, a whole load of research has been done to rigorously test the, the claim of the gospels being eyewitness testimony and being sort of specific and getting details right, including speech. Um, and, you know, I touch on this in the book, but essentially one strand, I could give you an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, one strand of this research is that sort of external to the Bible, um, a, uh, a an academic did a study looking at all the names that people called in first century Jewish community in Greco-Roman Judea. And so using kind of inscriptions and all sorts of other archaeological references made a kind of massive reference over 3,000 name occurrences and looked at the sort of statistical pattern of name usage and then compared what Jewish people were called, both male and female, in um first century Greco-Roman Judea and compared it with Greco-Roman Egypt, so just like 20, 30 miles away. And um, and what that study showed is that there's a different statistical frequency of names um, in those two locations at exactly the time of Jesus, but the Gospels accurately record statistically the right names that people were called and it's it's astonishing the research is is, is really is. really amazing, um, and it shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that these books, the Gospels, were even though they weren't written in or written in Judea um, in the first century, because you know um, Matthew's Gospel, yeah, written in Judea, but John's Gospel was written in Ephesus in Turkey, and Luke's Gospel were probably written in Antioch, so. Even though that's the case, they get these very difficult details to get right. What what are people called? And yeah, statistical evidence supports that. Now, one of the things that's really this is to if you really want to nerd out and geek out on this. Oh well, yes, this is, is what they this don't is about. just get the right statistical pattern. So, for example, um, outside the the New Testament, it's forty one percent of names used. Inside the New Testament, it's forty percent of names used. It's really really close pattern um but in addition to that the gospel writers get the right features of names and one of the studies looks specifically at direct speech 
So if we take an example, if the most popular male Jewish name in first century Greco-Roman Judea is Simon, you it you you would have been dealing with a lot of Simons. There would have been a lot of Simons running around because it's the most popular name. So you would need to disambiguate, you need to distinguish which Simon you were talking about. Now, the interesting thing about the Gospels is they do this when a name is popular and they don't do it when it isn't popular. So a name like Philip or... um, uh, anyway, the, the, those other names, Thomas, for example, is not even in the top 100 most popular names. He's always just plain Thomas. And there's a really good example of this um, in the Gospels where the story is told of um, John the Baptist's head being requested on a platter mm-hmm. um, by the daughter of, of um, Herod's wife. And it... it what's really interesting is that when the narrator is telling the story um they say john the baptist and then the narrator after having established it's john the baptist just uses the name john but then as the narrative goes on direct speech is recorded of this woman who requests the head of john the baptist on the platter and she says i want the head of john the baptist not just john so Again, it's fascinating. A narrator who doesn't know this, this you know, research two thousand years later <laughs> yeah. gets that detail right and actually records direct speech accurately. Doesn't just paraphrase it because we've already established which John it is. Um, wow. So I think there's really, really good evidence to support a that the Gospels were eyewitness testimony, and b that they accurately recorded what Jesus said. I mean, there's all sorts of other things we could say about oral tradition. You know, there's a culture in that in that culture of learning by rote. So almost certainly many of the disciples were illiterate and would have learned off by heart the teachings of Jesus, which they would have heard on multiple occasions, not just once. Um, and then you've got the the community element as well. So people checking with each other, did we get this right? And then of course, four gospels, not just one. Yeah. That's so good. I, I feel like um, when, when confronted with this sort of evidence, there's always still a leap you have to make. There's always still a leap of like faith or belief or trust in this, you know, because it is so like, you know, as we, as you're coming to it, there's so much evidence and it bolsters your trust and your faith in it. But there's still like at the very beginning for people that, that are still thinking or like examining the way of Jesus or examining the Christian faith, like, um, almost like here it is. This is like accurate eyewitness. This is who Jesus is, what he's done. And then still there's this, and what will you do? You know, there's still this like, will you trust? Yes, I think that's, um, but I think that's true in any relationship, isn't it? That you can know things about a person. You can know they exist. You can know factual details. You can hear what they say. But until you enter a relationship with a person, you know, there isn't that element of trust. And, and um, yeah, faith in the New Testament, the Greek word is pistis. Well, that's the root of the Greek word for, mm-hmm. for faith. And that meant to be persuaded. So faith is based 
on having been persuaded that something is true and reliable and then taking a step of trust, mm. not a leap into the dark, Yep. Um, a, a step of trust, which is a kind of relational step that that, that needs to be taken. So um, I totally agree. And remember, this is also, it's also the case in the Gospels. People heard the teachings of Jesus and saw the miracles of Jesus and not everybody followed him. There is an element of choice as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. So the, I actually, what you just said, I've never actually heard before. So the, you, can you repeat that faith? The, the, um, so, the, yeah, the Greek, the root of the Greek word that we translate faith is pistis. And that means to be persuaded. Oh, wow. So, so the basis of faith is truth and reality. You've come to be persuaded. And then as you exercise faith, you're persuaded, but you begin to operate in trust. And that's the relational dimension. So you move forward on on a solid ground and sometimes we we sort of think of faith as i don't know if you if if there was evidence you wouldn't need faith to believe it that is a totally alien concept to the new testament wow faith in the new testament is based on truth and reality yeah and a person being persuaded that this is the case yeah yeah that that maps over I've never had that language before because I actually have never heard that before, read that before, but it maps over the idea of both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament scriptures are, are, are showing uh, ultimate reality. They're like showing how we actually live a life under this reality yeah, and God being the reality. Exactly. God being more solid than us. Yes. So, so it was Freud who spoke of the idea of God as wish fulfillment. Like we desire a father figure to exist. So we've projected him in our imagination. God is essentially a, a figment of humanity's idolatry and imagination. And I think that has really, really seeped into into western particularly western thought and therefore into the church in the west where you know we may we we may perceive god a bit in that way and actually treat him a bit in that way and the bible does the opposite the bible perceives god as as far more solid and robust and real and tangible and present and and moving and making stuff happen and in a way we're in the shadows not god Yeah. Yeah, which you know sheds light on the the fact that the the beginning of wisdom is the knowledge or the fear of God. Like mm. to even know how to live wisely, um, it, it it begins with the basis of the reality of who God is, and then because yeah. of that firm foundation, like you said, you can build a life on that. Jesus, yeah. Jesus, Jesus teaching like you can build your life on solid ground or sand, you know, yeah. and because this is reality, this is like bedrock, and you can trust in that. I love Mm. that. I've never connected those two things and it makes so much sense now in my mind Mm. of faith because there is, there is, there is a Western idea of faith being like a leap. And I think that the leap is more of a trust. It's more of like, will you entrust yourself to this reality? Um, Or will you choose other realities, you know, or other things you think are realities? Um, That's so good. One of the questions uh, I wanted to ask you, Amy, was about um, how we got our modern new testament or the canonization because you brought this up it's like powerful men put this together 
and it's just used as like just all power dynamics. It's just power. Yeah. It's just power. And um, and then you know how you you talk about this in your book, but I'd love for you just to like just a really quick because sure. you, you do yeah. it so much more in your book, and it's so good. And you're and yeah, like, try try and do it short. Try and be yeah, quick. Yeah. <laughs> no, not, um, not not quick, but just like a little no, no, a little I get it. appetizer. It's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So essentially, um, the word canon, um, in in Greek, sort of meant um, like a stat. It's a measuring rod. The physical thing, a canon, was a was a reed that was used like a meter ruler sort of thing. And so it, it denotes the idea of having met a particular standard, having reached a mark, and. Um, the mistake people often make with regard to the biblical canon is to to have this conception of a committee conferring authority on books of the Bible that they didn't have before after until the committee met. And often people think it was at the Council of Nicaea. It actually wasn't. The main canon discussions happened in um, 393 AD in Hippo and then 397 AD at Council of the Church in Carthage. And um, what's really interesting is that already by then, the canon of the New Testament is already actually established in the manuscript tradition. So what the New Testament is, is being translated, it's being spread throughout the known world, um, it's being copied by hand, and so you've got this vast array of handwritten manuscripts and documents. And and so um, it isn't the case that the church sort of decide what, what is in and what is out. That, that would be a wrong way to look at it. It's an overwhelmingly organic process. And you can actually compare that to the Quran, which is um, described in the Hadith. That's the written um, traditions about the life of Muhammad. And the, the compilation of the Quran is described when a guy called Uthman the Magnificent, the third sort of ruler of the Islamic world after Muhammad died, he notices that there's variations in the Quran's people are reading. And he says that, give us all the materials, get all the manuscripts, get everything in create an authorized version and burn everything else so from here on we've got the authorized version so you really don't see that with the new testament <clears throat> and that's why you know you have the whole process of textual criticism if there are differences between manuscripts like different word spellings or you know missing words in certain in certain versions the manuscript tradition is really really important so it's an organic process. Now, as a secular person, you could look at that and say, this is a really amazing example, a rare example of not the victor's history. This is the opposite of that. This is poor, disenfranchised, um, largely illiterate people um, taking the world by storm with these writings obviously the people who wrote them weren't illiterate but the vast number majority of of original christians would have been and the letters would have been written uh, read out in their gatherings so you have this phenomenal movement that is grassroots that spreads like wildfire that is translated into multiple languages with very little control so by the time you get to um, the, the end of the third, the third century, you, you, fourth century, sorry, you, you've you've got not just the New Testament, but then you've got the emergence of heresies. So you've got people 
claiming to write gospels and taking the name of someone famous like Philip or Mary or Thomas and and saying or Judas and saying look here's a gospel that that with my little ideas in them that that should come alongside you know these other gospels which seem to be so successful and so essentially the councils of the church meet in order to think about how do we preserve for future generations what we have always known it are the scriptures hmm. you know this organic holy spirit revealed if you look at it from a spiritual point of view or if you're looking at it from a secular point of view how do you protect this kind of grassroots movement from being overtaken by other alien ideas uh, uh, trying to kind of run on its coattails and so they meet in order to say the canon is closed. There can't now be additions to this. Now, there were some discussions about individual books of the New Testament that different sections geographically of the church had questions about. And so the church fathers kind of record for us what some of those arguments were about. And basically it went down to... What, what's the authorship of this? So there are questions about Hebrews, for example, because no one mm-hmm. knew what the authorship was, and that was a that was a really important um, measure. Um, there were questions about the book of James, but those were resolved because James was the bishop of the church in Jerusalem, and the Syriac church was very close geographically, and they knew they had kind of traditional knowledge that James had been the author of that and so that was resolved so yes there were there were some discussions but the the key thing is that that council of the church don't confer on the bible any authority it didn't already have it's Mm. more like a protective thing saying this is what has been originally given and we're not going to add to it gosh that's so helpful that is that was really uh, a, a beautiful summary of the putting together of the Bible. That was well done. Um, so I, because your choice of words and the brevity of like how you said that was really, really important. Um, because I think, I think the, the image that we have of like people going, okay, what do we want in the Bible? What do we want to keep? How do we want to keep oppressing people? Um, or how do we want to make sure that this is what we want to say about, you know, except, you know, sexual minorities and women and blah, 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 blah. This is what we want to, to, versus like, this is what was known in and around the Christian community for so long. And it does make sense that like the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Judas, like we want, we want it to be read publicly as well. Like getting together and saying, no, this is what we're, this is what we're studying. Mm -hmm. This is, this is, this is what um, is canonized. That does make a lot more sense. Uh, Really question about Hebrews. How did Hebrews get in there then? Cause we still don't know this day who wrote it. Yeah, so I mean, there are massive. De- <laughs> it was in because it's in, you yeah. know, organically. It's there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's spread. It's translated. It's read in the churches. Um, it's just that someone raised some people raised a query about it because yeah. of authorship. So then there are questions and arguments about who wrote it, and yeah. then they realise that doesn't really matter. It's clearly yeah. in. So it was like, <laughs> yeah. How have you seen the, um, you know, as you make you and, um, as you've planted a church, you and your husband, uh, planted a church, as you lead this, uh, 
conservationist contra what did you say it was conservation conservation oh conservation yes sorry yeah um (laughs) this uh this farm um that you have how has all of that been informed by the scriptures Mm. and how have you seen the scriptures like be be the power like god using it in power yeah wow um I mean, it's just been a massive journey for us. I think initially we took the farm on because the Lord spoke to us through a prophetic word. It was just incredibly clear, including my husband drawing a map. And then we end up literally getting the piece of land that is is on his hand-drawn map. That's another story. Um, In retrospect, I can see why the Lord led us because this question about care for the environment and care for um, biodiversity and care for creation actually matters to this generation really profoundly both in the church and outside the church from a scriptural point of view um, we began to realize that almost I mean so many of the key encounters that God has with people happen outside. They don't happen in buildings. So if you do a study just even of the book of Genesis, you know, where God speaks to Abraham, you know, how he intervenes, it's in the outdoors. And there's something really beautiful for us to recapture as Christians, actually worshipping God and, and encountering the creator outside and for some people who've been traumatized by oppressive religious institutions or organizations to not be in a building to to be in the outdoors is just is just really freeing and really powerful and then um if you take for example the specifics of the teaching of jesus how much of it relates to the natural world from you know, pruning trees and vines and, you know, um, all of this and sheep and all of this sort of um, visual, creative, imaginative, tangible imagery. And then the, the sort of heart of the Christian faith, which is that, you know, it's not just that we're embodied and our bodies matter as well as our souls, you know, we're getting away from this Greek idea of just being minds on legs or, or, you know, some sort of spiritual plane, but actually being embodied really matters. And, you know, God demonstrates that in Christ, Jesus is God in a body in flesh. And so there's a sort of, there's all sorts of hints of the incarnation then as well in, in how we worship and what we do and um, how we how we sort of experience God. So and then there's been a whole trauma thread as well. Um, people just encountering God in embodied ways in the natural world, um, overlapping with healing from trauma and that that just being a really beautiful thing so wow. we found a lot of men um able to come and engage with stuff at the farm in a way that they said they would never ever do in they would never go to a church building and part of that might be kind of british reserve you don't want to be seen going to church because that's a bit weird but you might take your child to a farm where there's going to be some worship and you know, engaging theological content, 
but you're you're not sort of pinned into a pew you can you can move you can go for a walk you can come back um you can get involved physically either with cultivation or building or whatever um yeah so so that's been really really interesting like reaching men by sort of embracing you know like women this obviously a massive generalization, but lots of women love to sit and talk about feelings and thoughts and maybe even book clubs and stuff like that. And that is much more conducive to a lot of what we see in, in church culture. And so um, really engaging with the outdoors has been amazing. It's amazing for women too, in different ways, of course. Hmm. What I, I hear there is just this, um, when, when you come to a, uh, an accepting uh, trust in the reliability of scripture and you're able then to, to reorder your entire world and then pull from it a whole way of living, a whole way of like being. And um, instead of all of your energy going to like pull apart and, and you know, the buzzword these days, especially in America is deconstruct instead of using all your energy to deconstruct this book or this library of books, you use this library of books to like kind of deconstruct your world and be able to reorder it in a way that's like ordered to reality. Mm-hmm. And, um, that sounds really, really cool. That's, mm. that's so cool. Um, Amy, I'm so glad for your, your mind, your ministry. Um, I know that, uh, our, our mutual friends, uh, that we have, um, David Bennett, who is our, our theologian in residence, uh, you've spent time, you and your husband mentoring him, and he speaks so highly of you and and your oh. impact in his life. And um, <laughs> love David. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, he's he's amazing. He's such a just such a gift. And so I just want to say thank you because I mean the fruit of your your ministry and the book and all of this stuff is just so helpful, and it's so helpful for people that are just trying to get their minds around can my heart just be at rest and trust this mm-hmm. library of books to give my life to, to know, to know reality, to know God. And um, can I say one thing about that though, as well, which yes. is I just find amazing is that inside that book itself, there's a, a liberty to doubt and question. And yeah. that is phenomenal. Yeah. You don't see that in either political or religious or ideological texts. In the Bible, you know, people give voice to where on earth are you, God? I don't mm. know if I even can believe in you because this is so awful, you know. Yeah. And real struggles and wrestles. And so I think I would want to say that the Bible is even a safe place for you if you've got questions. Wow. Yeah. That's so good. That's a really good way to end because um, it's so true. It can handle them. It can handle your questions. Mm. Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, you're in uh, you're in England, so it's probably getting late there. So um, yeah, thanks again. Did.